Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Friday. And because it's Friday and this is the weekend podcast, uh, we are joined by Tim Miller, who joins me tanned, ready, and rested from South Carolina. So good morning, Tim. Charlie, good morning. I'm in the shadow of where the Confederate flag used to stand, one of our final, one of our more recent victories that we had. You remember when we used to do things that felt good? Well, I also remember when, when when Nikki Haley looked like she was going to be the conscience of the Republican Party. I remember <laughs> that, but but that's that's how old I am. So you were up late last night. Yeah, you you went to the the Mike Pence speech, which I did. Which, which I have to admit sounds extraordinary for its gaslighting quality. The way that he's basically forgetting about January sixth and. Going back to how wonderful the Trump presidency was, so it's 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 the old Mike Pence. In, in case there was any concern that Mike Pence might have grown a conscience or that Mike Pence might be pivoting, um, we're not seeing that. Well, you were there, so you, you tell yeah, me about it. it. Yeah, it's a, it was a try-hard version of the old Mike Pence. Actually, um, it was interesting. The the event was at the Palmetto Family Council. Um, so I was a little concerned I was going to burst into flames when I walked inside, but I did not. Um, uh, and it was their annual gala dinner. And so, you know, the, the crowd, the interesting thing is the crowd was very much in the Pence kind of oeuvre, right? I mean, it was um, uh, earnest, uh, evangelical, um, you know, uh, uh, voters older vote, you know, a very blue hair crowd. And, you know, when I was kind of talking to people casually, uh, you know, a, a lot of them in this room, you know, tended to kind of be on the Pence side of the dispute, right? Like they all liked Donald Trump, don't get me wrong, but they, you know, sort of, they really connected with Pence, um, you know, and his story about, you know, being saved by Christ um, and such. So, uh, you know, they, it, it, so this should have been a home base kind of place for him, right? And And so he had an opportunity where he could have, I think maybe just ignored everything altogether and kind of just talked about faith issues, right? And, you know, transgendered sports or whatever uh, the Palmetto Family Council's riled up about these days and kind of ignored everything. I thought that was an option. Uh, another option would have been to, you know, kind of use this place to stand his ground and say, I did the right thing and the moral thing. And I, yeah. you know, followed yeah. the commandments. I didn't lie. Nah, that yeah. was never really in the cards, but it was an option. And, and then there was the thing that he did, which was, you know, give a very... 2024 um, prep style speech that 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 lambasted Biden said that you know the first hundred days have been dividing America and blah 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 and praised President Trump. He even cucked himself at one point talking about how at the beginning of the administration he was very he was too shy he was shy and embarrassed to ask Trump if he could speak in his stead at the at the Right for Life mar- at the uh, uh, Right to Life march in Washington. It was a weird story, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he said uh, one of his first lines was. I was I'm here to say thank you for, you know, helping me serve our great president, Donald Trump. So if there was ever any doubt um, that he would be mad about the fact that Donald Trump sicked a mob that was shouting for calling for his hanging. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. So here's the New York Times report in his first political speech. Former Vice President Mike Pence made clear that despite his grim falling out with former President Trump, his days of trying to ingratiate himself to the former boss are far from over. 
as he plots his political future. Uh, Pence made no mention of the scathing criticism Trump leveled at him for his refusal to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. He did not mention the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, which included agitated Trump supporters chanting, hang Mike Pence. Well, the president did nothing for hours to stop them. Instead, Pence made his political calculation clear. Any possible future in the party for him still depends on staying closely aligned to Trump, despite the accompanying indignities. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, uh-huh. I think that there were two, you know, the, the interesting uh, thing to me is I was trying to sort of read between the lines of the text because, I mean, that was Annie Carney's story at the Times. And it's just, I mean, that's the that's the headline, right? Like, that's the New York Times angle on this, that like Mike Pence, no. after being called to be hanged, still is sucking up to Donald Trump. Um, no, no change, no change. Um, but, uh, but, it, but it was interesting because it was a prepared speech. He wasn't going off the cuff. And I was trying to see what... Um, you know, he might be trying to distinguish himself on. And and the one thing that he said that multiple other speakers said that they, they were referencing Tim Scott is that they wanted to look forward with a positive agenda. And it's just this very soft, like, you know, the softest, lightest touch of a, you know, implicit contrast of trying to like give himself his own identity at all. Right. Because otherwise it's just, oh, you're Trump's apprentice. Right. Um, and so I think it was sort of talking about his faith, talking about that. He did. I, I, I don't know if other people caught this. You know, he didn't mention the stop the steal stuff at all. As Andy said, he didn't mention one six. He did have one line I thought was interesting, though, which was America did not vote for Joe Biden's agenda. And so I, I, I don't know if that was just trying to be too cute by halfway of saying that, you know, he, he thinks that Joe Biden tricked people or, or whether he was kind of doing a little wink there at the at the stop the steal. But um, but yeah, he certainly didn't do anything to debunk it. You know, the, the, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Mike Pence, when he stands up there, he doesn't have to say that I'm I'm not the same as Donald Trump. I'm not going to be spewing invective because he sort of is. I mean, that's he's he's Mike Pence. Right. So you 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 know that you you get some of the Trumpian policy without the personality. So is, is like is is Mike Pence is really like the if, if you had to come up with a food equivalent for Mike Pence, he's kind of like tofu, isn't he? He takes on the coloration and the taste of the people around him. He's kind of bland and he's kind of inoffensive in and of himself, not terribly interesting. But, you know, you, you put him next to something spicy and he becomes spicy. You put him next to something, you know. You know, <laughs> you know I did. I'm, You're I'm, just I'm kind of, on the fly, Charlie. This is really. I am. Yeah, you, you, you borrow this. Yes, yeah, the, yeah, very yeah. Much. I, I'm just imagining the tofu, the tofu. I feed my daughter in those gross little packages and it comes out all just. Yeah. Just gelatiny. Um, uh, he is, and 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 the room again. I'm, I'm, so tonight um, we can talk about this. I'm going to um, the the Richland County, which is the county of Columbia, uh, the capitals uh, party convention uh, where Lynn Wood will be appearing, and you know. So I think that we're going to oh. get spicy meatballs tonight, and so I'll be interested in the contrast. But the crowd was also very tofu last night, right? I mean, it was. This was not. Pence was doing his best to kind of do the Energizer Bunny, you know. I'm sure you've seen plenty. You've gone to so many of these rubber chicken dinners, yeah, you know, where you've got the where you got the boring politician, like you know, making a strong line about you know, um, and we will back the blue, and then it's kind of like, you know, it was a very stale room. Um, and despite the fact that this was his audience. You know, there there was it was not a packed convention center. I, I don't they they were not following the social distancing and COVID guidelines, but they could have been. Um, you know, given the kind of crowd there, so I, it's it, it's hard to see what 
you know, I, it's the kind of thing where, where, you know, he wants to sort of be the person that, that, um, you know, gets this by default. Right. And, and it's hard to see how you do that with these sort of soft, implicit contrasts with Trump, um, you know, given the fact that obviously yeah. Trump himself is going to be dinging him. Yeah. And, and people don't want soft necessarily. So come on, can I push my tofu analogy? Because, you know, you, you mentioned like these crowds are often sort of like tofu and, and, you know, having been to many, many of these events, and, and by that, I mean, you, you, you put somebody like a Lynn Wood up in front of him, we have to stop the steal and, you know, it's fascism in America and the crowd goes, yeah. But if you also had put, I don't know, Jack Camp up and said, you know, we need to become more inclusive. We need to be the party of ideas and opportunity. The same crowd would have gone along with that. I mean, this is what's interesting to me is, is watching the Republican Party. They will respond to completely di- across the entire range of rational, conservative, principled, crazy, lunacy, you know, batshit, you know, Lynn Wood. Uh, so that's maybe that explains. So Lynn Wood, they invited him to speak at the Republican convention. This is a guy who, uh, you know, played a rather significant role in Georgia, convincing people not to turn out and vote, right? Because it was all rigged. And and he is, did I read this correctly, that he's actually telling people or implying that Donald Trump is not only going to be restored to the presidency, but he's literally now the president, that he's literally in the Oval Office? I mean, he, it, it, is, it, is it that nuts? Yeah, no, he's hiding in the shadows in the old Oval Office. I, Lynn Wood is is a madman, and so he he's running for people who don't know. He's running for the chair of South Carolina. Uh, okay, I you know, this is kind of one of these things that is that you know these sort of chairman's races are still kind of an inside game. So I, I don't. It doesn't seem to me, based on my conversations down here, that he's actually going to win this thing. But but he but who knows? We'll see. And. Um, but he he has a following, right? And so he's going to these South Carolina events, and like and he was caught on tape earlier this week chasing down the current chairman, who, who's you know a MAGA. He's he's no Liz Cheney, you know, not exactly a profile in courage. This guy Drew McKesson, and he's chasing him down, going, "Drew, I know about you and Lindsey Graham, and I'm going to bring it out. I'm going to bring it out. I know about you and and, and kind of shouting him down in the back of a room." And he, he was speaking last night at a different convention in the state where he was talking about the pedophilia rings and you know all of the Q, all the QAnon stuff and and how and how Donald Trump is. Uh, you know, and how maybe Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott even are part of it. And Donald Trump's keeping his friends close and his enemies closer because uh, he's the one that's rooting all this stuff out. I mean, it's really that shit crazy stuff. And so yeah, I'll be, to be fascinated to see what the what, what you get. Because um, I do think people are susceptible to this. I, I, I think that you're exactly <laughs> right. Like, like well, obviously, there was this dark shadow in the part of this sort of underbelly of the party that we've talked about a million times that that has been unleashed by Trump. But these people could have been could be steered a different direction. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah. Okay. So since you raised the issue of pedophilia and you know you know PizzaGate and all of that stuff, uh, I, I was I was debating like which crazy should we talk about today? Actually, every day I feel like we're, we're doing that. I mean, I was I was going to start with with Rudy, but let's go right to this Matt Gates story <laughs> because people haven't seen it. The, the Daily Beast has has a story about Matt Gates and and what they have is a written the written confession of his sleazy partner. What's his name? Greenberg. Yeah. Um, the stupidest criminal and, in history. Yeah, really dumb. You know, I mean, a little, little bit sketchy. He lays out all of his crimes and everything. But what's so it, that's fascinating. What is really fascinating is he, in great detail, he lays out what he and Matt Gates were doing with underage girls and giving them money and stuff. 
But he wrote this, correct me if I'm wrong about this, he put this all in writing to send to Roger Stone as a way of getting a pardon from President Trump. And the implication is, look, I have all of this dirt and I'm going to drop it on Matt Gates unless you can give me a pardon. And the back and forth with Roger Stone, who's shaking him down for a quarter million dollars is payment for getting him. It is, I mean, look, uh, yeah. I, I know same old, same old how deeply corrupt and vile and venal this crowd was, but I'm sitting in bed last night reading this going, this is just breathtaking. The the producers of, you know, House of Cards would have blushed to have written the kinds of back and forth between this guy and Roger Stone selling a pardon. So, I mean, give me your take on all this. I mean, how many times has, have we said this, by the I way? Know, I know, I know. If House of Cards had written this, people would be like, okay, yeah. I, you know, I'm flipping the channel. This is too too mm-hmm. far. Um, I, I think you got it most – I think you might have missed one thing in, in, in your description, mm-hmm. though. I, I don't think that, that he's – that this Greenberg is actually smart enough that he was using Matt Gates as bait. I, I think that he's so stupid. That, that Roger said that I want you to I want I need a briefing document to provide to President Trump so that you know so that he can pardon you and get you off the hook and so you need to tell me what happened and and so he like just puts all of his crimes in writing to to Roger Stone of all people and sends it to him like I, I don't think there was any great like you know strategy around like, around you know Matt Gates and and um uh, is, is I, right okay. No, gen- generally, if you, if you have to choose between cunning and stupid with a lot of these people, you, you should always opt for the, for the, yeah. for the stupid. I go for the simplest ex- explanation. But there's this whole implication, you know, hey, the feds are really squeezing me. You know, they really right. think that I'm going to flip and really ought to do this. Uh, I suppose the good news is that, that Stone, who, again, was trying to get paid for influencing and was obviously very, very close to the whole process, you know, I, you know, ultimately failed. Was it uh, Cipollone uh, apparently looked at the, you know, took one look at the list and said, uh, this guy is off. So I suppose that's the good, that's the good news, right? Um, it, I guess, is it? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, who knows? It's hard to, to I, I think that Trump has just such a moving target of like who's in his good graces week to week, day to day, right? That it's like, yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I guess apparently Roger wasn't able to break through that day, but clearly he did another other times. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, this is, uh, on the cunning versus stupid thing, I mean, this is just the stupidest criminal I've ever. You have to read the Daily Beast story to, to get. Oh, no, you do. And, you and, you and do. I, yeah. just, I think that uh, you know. I think that Gates, you know, who is now going all in with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and we've discussed this on this podcast before. Like the the downfall of this guy is really is really jarring because and his father was. I, I, I hope I don't get fact checked on this. Don Gates was uh, the president of FSU, and I think the state senate president as well. He was a big, he was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but, you know, he was serious. He was conservative. He's a little bit of a firebrand in his own right. He is. He's not dead. Um, but but you know, so so Gates gets elected you know, on this pedigree, right? And and you know, he could have come and been a normal Donald Trump butt boy. Right. And been on and been on the glide path, you know, maybe getting a Senate, you know, maybe taking Rick Scott's Senate seat sometime. Right. I, I, you know, he could have go, done 80 percent of the stupid MAGA stuff that he's doing 
and been in really good shape in Donald Trump's party, uh, you know, for a guy who who would have who's a chameleon who would have been a Mitt Romney Republican if that's if that's what it was needed, and and now here he is going on a tour with Marjorie Taylor Greene and you know and and her sex guru and and you know, getting in this situation with Greenberg and you know being a Newsmax flunky. I, it's I, it's a really to 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 go so low that you've even bottomed out of the Donald Trump Republican Party. Uh, take some talent. Okay. Well, what was interesting about this story about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene going on the road with him, having this, this 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 event, is the gates had been really quiet for a while. I mean, really, this had gone dark uh, until this this uh, Daily Beast story comes out. You know, he's not. You notice he hasn't shown up on Tucker Carlson's show since uh, since he yeah. did that whole. Hey, Tucker, you you know this girl? You were there, and Tucker, I have no idea what you're talking about. Double date. <laughs> okay, so gonna get Gates. G- Gates right now is gonna latch on to anyone. He will go anywhere to find a friend. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, what's in it for her? And again, uh, I suppose we're on this continuum of cunning versus really, really stupid. And I think I'm going with the really, really stupid on all of this. What is her upside of associating herself with a guy who is about to just go down in spectacular flames? I think owning the libs and 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 in in this definition, the libs even encompasses like Mitch McConnell, right? I, I just I think that by distinguishing, doing anything to signal to the base voters that you are one of them and not you know one of the establishment deep state you know pedophilia ring people. I think it's as simple as that. Like Matt Gates is now a. Uh, you know, just sort of a lightning rod for that. And everyone else is like, I don't want to touch this lightning rod. And so MTG is like, hell yeah, that's, that's what I want. That's the rod. I, I, want, so I, to I am, I am unafraid. Okay. So yeah. speaking of other crazies and people going down in flames, the Rudy Giuliani story is really quite remarkable. Um, you know, America's mayor whose uh, offices and home were raided by the FBI, obviously, um, under a very, very serious criminal investigation uh, into his dealings with, with Ukraine I don't want to spend a lot of time about his appearance last night, but I, I did think this was interesting. I mean, he's pushing back. Uh, Donald Trump is saying what a great uh, what a great patriot he is. Uh, some of the folks over at National Review, Baseball Crank, is very indignant about uh, imagine going after. Uh, this is why are you not shocked if they're going after Rudy Giuliani? I don't know because the guy's a complete you know serial criminal thug mobster type, and maybe you know that's what you do in 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 our political culture, but. Let me play a 25-second soundbite from Rudy Giuliani, who's uh, uh, talking with, of course, um, well, who is he? Was he, is he with Tucker or is he with Hannity here? I always, I'm getting there. I always see on Fox. Here's Rudy. Being dismissed, and it's stopping. This is no longer uh, a free country. We might as well be in, you know, East Berlin before the wall fell. This is, this is tactics only known in a dictatorship where you... You seize a lawyer's records right in the middle of his representation of his client. Uh, I mean, you you should be prosecuted and disbarred for that. (laughs) It's East Germany. You know, I guess I'm also old enough to remember when he was the guy who was the prosecutor. It's like he's never heard of any of this stuff. Right. It's like this is also this never happened. I was never the the U.S. attorney who went after people and who you know subpoenaed them and had raids in their house. I don't know. It's and Rudy keeps talking. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that uh, firstly, thank goodness for the for Farah. 
because it seems to me like there's a lot of white collar crime going around that isn't yeah. being uprooted uh, in 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 the in the Trumpian swamp, and uh, and and Farah is the one you know sort of tangible uh, okay. uh, law that that has that has really come on, come know, on, come on. hey hey hey, hey. Farah, like what percentage of people know, like know what you're talking about here? Oh, sorry, hey, sorry, sorry. Hey, it's hey, a floor, yeah. uh, well, I, I don't even know what for, it's for, Foreign Agents Registration Act, which makes it illegal to act as an agent of a foreign principal without registering with the Department of Justice. So, you know, the purpose of this Foreign Agents Registration Act is to identify foreign influence in the United States and address threats to national security by promoting transparency and ensuring that we all know the source of certain information from foreign agents intended to influence American public opinion, policy, and laws. And that's what Rudy's being investigated for violating. That was a really good explainer. Thank you, Charlie, um, yeah. for and for inter- intervening there. Um, and, but it was what also brought down Manafort, right? Yeah. Uh, because the t- it, it's an easy thing to to prosecute, right? It's an e- easy thing to to get enough evidence for in order to sort of issue a warrant and do all the things you saw yesterday. Because it's like, well, we have the evidence that he was representing a foreign agent, and we can see here they didn't file the paperwork. So, you know, it's pretty open and shut case here, Bob. Um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting on a different clip on CNN last night, Aaron Burnett was pressuring uh, Rudy's uh, brain genius son about this. Um, oh, Andrew, yeah. And and she said, you know, this, this carries with it a five-year jail sentence maximum and and so is rudy going to be sharing information and his son is just doing the hemina 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 uh it seems like he just realized live on cnn that that, that this carries with it serious serious consequences so uh you know look I, we'll see exactly how it how it plays out but uh, you know it could only be it, you know it would only bring us perfectly full circle of the joe biden victory here that the keystone cops that broke the law to try to take down joe biden end up getting donald trump impeached and ended up getting themselves imprisoned while joe biden gets into the white house um it, you know it, it would be a pretty nice bow on the whole story so yeah, so, so what aaron burnett was trying to get at was is rudy going to flip on on donald trump right. and of course you know andrew's going well of course he would he would never do that and i you know look i mean i Again, I remember when the question of would Michael Cohen flip on Donald Trump came up, and uh, I'm not proud to say that I was in the absolutely not, no way, why are you even raising this possibility camp, because there was no way that Michael Cohen was ever going to turn on Donald Trump, and of course he did, he flipped to hard, and now he's saying that he thinks that Giuliani will too. I'm still skeptical about that, but what do you think? I'm skeptical about it. Yeah. I don't trust Michael Cohen as far as I could throw him. I, yeah, I, don't either, I, I, no. don't, I do not get the resistance love for Michael Cohen. And I, I'm not even convinced that he did a full flip on Donald Trump. Um, mm-hmm. to be honest, I, you know, and I, he certainly didn't get much out of that. So, um, anyway, I, I don't know what that, uh, I, I, what Rudy's going to do. I find it hard to imagine him flipping on Trump, but you know, who the hell knows? I mean, Rudy's like, is, is popping eight scotches a night and, you know, you get them in the right place and Donald Trump's mean to him one night. All these guys have such fragile egos um, that, you know, I, I don't think it's impossible, but, but my gut says no as well. Yeah. My gut says no as well. Although there is that, that soundbite that where he does say at, at some point, well, I have insurance. What I, who, who knows what he's, what he's talking about there. So um, we also uh, learned from the Washington post this morning that the FBI had warned, you know, felt it was so important to, warn these guys about the Russian disinformation involving the Ukraine that 
that they sat down with apparently both Rudy Giuliani and Ron Johnson. Uh, Washington Post says the FBI warned Rudy Giuliani in late 2019 that he was the target of a Russian influence operation aimed at circulating falsehoods intended to damage President Biden politically. Um, you go down a little bit in the story. The FBI last summer also gave what is known as a defensive briefing to Senator Ron Johnson, who ahead of the election used his purchase chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee to investigate Biden's dealings with Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. Johnson is is now acknowledging this. He said uh, he received this vague warning from the FBI briefers, um, but whatever. So they went out of their way to warn both Rudy and Ron John that this was part of a disinformation campaign. And apparently neither of them just even blinked. They just went ahead with it. Oh, so Ron John didn't listen to the FBI briefing and say, oh, man, as in my, nope. Uh, nope. my given my oath of office, I should consider the national security of the country and not press forward with this. That wasn't how Ron Johnson re- replied to that. Apparently not. No, no, no. And, and 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 again, because Ron and on is become what, what he is, he's he, the, the other statement in his quote, he's blaming um he said he confirmed this. He said, because there was no substance of the briefing and because it followed the production and leaking of a false intelligence product by Democrat leaders, I suspected that the briefing was being given to be used at some future date for the purpose that it is now being used to offer the biased media an opportunity to falsely accuse me of being a tool of Russia despite warnings. I mean, whew. I get He's so got- confused about the rules around back the blue. Charlie, it's like, you know, I mean, it's like the FBI doesn't, I guess, count. There's a carve out for the FBI and for the Capitol Police, uh, I guess. Um, Yeah, it's it's uh, we're back to jackbooted thugs. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, they they flip back and forth. Okay, so we talk about something a little bit more substantive, although this is this is good stuff. I'm ready for some substance. So there's this. It's very clear that the Republicans have decided to lean really heavily in, again, we've talked about culture war, but really leaning really heavily into the issue of race mm-hmm. and the report we have from political playbook, which I'm sure that you've seen uh, shows that Mitch McConnell um, and 37 Republican senators are calling on the education department to stop a proposed rule that mentions the 1619 project, uh, which of course, you know, su- suggests, um, you know, that, that the real founding of the country was in 1619 with slavery, not in 1776, etc. But it's also very clear that if you watch one talking head after another, they're really going after the, the, the argument that America is not a racist country. There's no systemic racism. You had Tim Scott, who was uh, pushed through the, the curtain the other night, and he said, you know, America is not racist. You know, this is, you know, the Democrats are using this to be di- div- divisive. And Joe Biden was asked about this yesterday by by Craig Melvin. And I, and I thought his answer, have you heard his answer? I, I thought his answer was very interesting. Okay. So again, you know, a, a lot of this seems to get bogged down into the question of is, is America fundamentally thoroughly racist? Is it systematically racist? You know, are we structurally racist? And there are folks that we know that unless you're willing to use the word systematic, that somehow you are, you know, not addressing this issue. So Craig Melvin is sitting down with Joe Biden and asks about Tim Scott's comment that America, you know, that America is not fundamentally racist. Uh, Let's play the clip. 
I watched the, uh, the speech last night. I watched the address. And then I watched the rebuttal from the junior senator of South Carolina last night, Tim Scott. He said, among other things, America isn't racist. Is it? No, I don't think the American people are racist. But I think after 400 years, African-Americans have been left in a position where they are so far behind the eight ball in terms of education, health, in terms of opportunity. I don't think America's racist, but I think the, the overhang from all of the Jim Crow and before that slavery have, have had a cost and we have to deal with it. Let's talk about the pandemic. Yep. Uh, so what do you think of that answer? I thought it was a great answer. I just Joe Biden continues to hit the right notes. I know you guys have talked about the speech on Wednesday while yeah. I was wrapping down here, but he, you know he is not playing into this game at all. Like you know T- Tim Scott's rebuttal speech that covered all of this racial, you know, sort of pushing back on wokeness was again like most of the Republicans stuff lately is just it's not even a response to joe biden like joe biden didn't talk about any of that stuff and the stuff in his in his address to to congress on wednesday you know the iglesia said on twitter it's just it was just another example of republicans being high on their own supply around this race stuff so i i think joe biden has handled it well obviously i think that some other democrats are putting themselves in in situations that aren't politically advantageous sometimes with their with their rhetoric around around this issue um and, and i and it, it this is it is correct that this is going to be everything and it's it's so it is sad and disorienting a little bit that race is so central to our politics in 2022 but just yesterday when i was I was meeting with a former uh, South Carolina GOP chairman down here. He said that he sees the midterms as being all about racial stuff, pushing back mm-hmm. on Black Lives Matter, backing the blue, uh, you know, yeah. critical race theory. Last night in Pence's speech, he, you know, he said he echoed Scott and said, you know, for an applause line, America is not a racist country with this deep implication that Joe Biden thinks it is right which which obviously his answer to that question was much more nuanced and 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 correct like that it acknowledges our race, racial history is, is the racist history that is not you know uh, pointing out individual americans and wagging their finger at them per se um but that's what meg pence wants people to think you know he said also in his speech last night that that joe biden is is getting rid of the 1776 project which was like the claremont response right. to 1619 which was like written by a four-year-old like smearing poop and crayons onto <laughs> onto like a you know a chalkboard um uh it was like a two-page memo um and but so you know they the, the Republicans see this as an opportunity, see the stuff that's coming from, you know I, I guess I'd call it sort of liberal quarters of society, but not really from the White House, and and trying to conflate those things and use it for political advantage. Well, I think you're exactly right there, and and this is going to be a major theme that you're going to be seeing in the next year. But but I I I was struck by by Biden's answer, and also Kamala Harris basically said the the, the same thing that. They're very careful to acknowledge the reality of racial discrimination and racial disparities without that full indictment that America itself is fundamentally evil and racist. I mean, this is the distinction. What the Republicans are wanting to say is that is that is that the left hates America, wants to cast America as a as a thoroughly corrupt and racist society. Um, of course, that's their excuse then for not dealing with the the reality and, and all of the problems, you know, whether you're talking about inequality, whether you're talking about discrimination, whether you're talking about policing or anything. Uh, but 
you know, Biden hit, I thought, the right note, which is no, I'm not going to call the country, I'm not going to indict the country, and I'm not going to call fellow Americans a name. Because generally, if you want to, I'm like, you're the communications guy, not me here, but <clears throat> if you if you want to shut down a debate, you start by insulting the other person, right? Say, Tim, let's, you and I have a debate about race racism. You're a complete racist and a bigot, aren't you? I mean, that's, we're not going to have a candid exchange of views when the conversation starts that way. And also, I do think, and I want to go back to, you know, James Carville's point about how Democrats need to rethink the way they use language that they, they often use. What, what did he say? The faculty lounge language. Yeah. So, so it's one thing to say we need to confront the legacy of race in this country. We have a lot of unfinished business, which is absolutely true. It's not that long ago that we, we defaced many of this stuff. But when they use terms like systematic racism, I think most people go, what are you talking about? What? You know, I mean, what, what, what is the word systematic? Uh, when you say that America is, you know, thoroughly racist, um, what are you saying about individuals? Because I do think this is one of those those areas where people can go either way. And if you start with an indictment, you're basically saying, you know, I'm I'm casting you into outer darkness, and you're not going to have a dialogue. Was that clear, or did I get lost? Yeah, there? no, you did. Yeah, the, yeah. the thing that Joe, the thing that Joe Biden does, that's in line with what. Carville is recommending is he talks like a human. I mean, he, he, sure, he's been yeah. in Washington for a while, so sometimes he gets a little bit of logaria and into Senate speak. But but when but the language that he uses is still very Wilmington, Delaware. You know, yeah. it just is. And so when he gave that answer to Craig Melvin, Melvin, it was you know this sort of what was what did Bill call it yesterday? The you know sort of traditional liberalism is sort of this lunch bucket liberal response, right? Which is like black people. You know, there is this overhang that has happened from Jim Crow into slavery, and and it has left black people in our society behind. Whether it's you know an education or healthcare or fi- you know financially, and and we need to figure out a way to deal with it. Like that, I, I, that is something that everybody agrees with, by the way. And when you go into the policing thing, the the Joe Biden position, when you look at something like the George Floyd incident, has broad support. You know, it is the Republican position that is that is actually the one that is in you know, a, you know, in, in a, in a kind of this narrow corner. I mean, I mean, just consider there's this New York times story that, that looked in, that looked behind the, the, um, uh, what happened in, in the jury room on the Chauvin trial. And, and it showed a jury of 12 people across races that took this very seriously. Some of them immediately thought he was guilty. Uh, you know, there was one person who, who, who wanted to talk it through. Um, they, they looked at the evidence you know, they considered the different causes. There was no discussion in this jury room of like Maxine Waters, right? I mean, there is this there is this notion on the right, which is kind of the opposite of this, which is that there's reverse racism in this country, that we're being racist against Derek Chauvin, that he's a victim, not a murderer, right? That, that he didn't get a he couldn't get a fair trial in this country. You see this in mainstream right wing media, not oh, just yeah. alt right stuff. This was in National Review and Daily Wire and all this. And so, and, and so, I think that if Joe Biden can position himself in a place where a broad swath of America is, which is acknowledging this racist legacy, acknowledging that we have to do something, that we need to make sure to level the playing field, we need to address uh, policing, we need to give people a hand up if they need it. 
like that that I think puts him in the broad center of this country where he's been that allowed him to get elected by seven million more votes and puts the Republicans on the edge on race where they're trying to push this, you know, kind of absurd reverse racist notion, right? That the country is now, you know, I you hear this argument on the left that that you know they say, well, the rights uh, the left says that the US is sy- systematically racist, systemically racist. You increasingly hear on the right that the the that the country is systemically racist against them against white people and against Christians, right. you know, and that the big corporations and blah, blah, blah. And, and so, you know, that is just as much a fringe position and, and frankly, an even a bigoted fringe position in addition to that. And so I, I think that if, that if Biden and Democrats generally can push Republicans into that camp and, and can sort of hold this broad center of caring about race and wanting to deal with it, um, I, you know, I think that's the right place to be. No, I, I I do think it's the right place to be, and I and I, I will say something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because, of course, you know, one of the questions that, that those of us who have been conservatives have to ask is like, how did we get to this moment? What did we miss? How deep was this? You know, how 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 deep was this this recessive gene? You know, was was the left right when they said that there was that that racist undertone? You know, to all of the stuff, which which you know, I I denied for a long time. It's becoming harder and harder to do that. I mean, I I do think it was a recessive gene. I do think that there was an alternative path. But one of the things that I've learned as I get older, and since you bring it up every once in a while that I'm significantly older than you, is to realize that I've never said you know you said but um is a lot of this stuff was not as far you know far in the past as we think. And I I read something the other day. I can't remember whether I actually said this on the podcast, but somebody was talking about Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was, when she was born, Thomas Jefferson was still uh, alive. And when she, and before she died, uh, Ronald Reagan was born. I mean, so, you know, um, American history is much more compressed than we think. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives thought that, okay, we, we'd solved all the problems of, uh, of, of race uh, in 1865, or maybe we solved it uh, during Reconstruction, or certainly we solved it by the mid-1960s, right? We passed the Civil Rights Act and we were done. I have to admit that I am really embarrassed now to look back at things that I wrote, say, in the early 1980s that basically implied that we'd solved all of these problems and realizing that when I was sitting there as this young punk kid um, in, in, in 1980, it was only 15 years after Bloody Sunday in Selma. And yet somehow we thought that we'd moved past all of that, that we'd fixed all of that when it wasn't that long ago. And so when, you know, to be surprised to see uh, all of the, the consequences of this now, and this is not an expression of white guilt. This is just an acknowledgement of reality. Yeah, I, I mentioned this. I forget if I gave this exact anecdote on the podcast I did with Perry Bacon while you were on holiday, mm-hmm. um, which I really enjoyed uh, getting his perspective on all this. If, if folks hadn't listened oh, to it, you, you, you guys had a great, great conversation. Yeah, and but okay. I, I think I mentioned this. But if I didn't, just just briefly, I, I had this realization recently too. The same realization, Charlie, where I was like, I, you know, when I was born, you know, Selma and, and Martin Luther King was was about 15 years before I was born, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, my daughter was born three years ago. About 15 years before she was born is, was 9-11. Throughout, uh, throughout my life, up until recently, by the way, this is a very recent re- re- revelation, um, I, I was like, I felt like Martin Luther King was history. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. Was, right. like, Martin Luther King was like the Civil so War. Though, was like, right. You mm-hmm. know, and, and, and to me, you know, 9-11 and all the things we're dealing with in the fallout of that feels like present, you know, not, yeah. not really history. But, but to my daughter, it's the same, right? And so 
I just sort of thinking about time in that sense, you know, really gives you a different view of, of why we're still dealing with this stuff and why, you know, if maybe the left uses a little faculty lounge politics and talking about it, the, the point that they're trying to make is that is that that's part of the system, right? Like we're still, there's a, there's just a line that connects all this stuff. We're still part of it. People are still alive. People who are in power, you know, we're we're already grown, you know, when all, when we are going through, you know, the civil rights element of all this. And you know, just one other point I, I, I get, I hate having to talk about Tucker all the time and it, it really t- t- tears me up to have to do it. And I, I just don't know how to deal with him to be honest with you. But, but he made this comment about the 1965 immigration right. last night, right? Where yep. it was the 1965 immigration act, which was, which changed, which repealed the rules that basically advantaged, northern europeans you know and um, western europeans northwestern europeans really um in in immigration to this country and and you know said that 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 law that repealed that and allowed more southern europeans and asians to come into the country um it was is an assault on our democracy and i think that just example is what we're talking about that 1965 immigration act it still has these echoes that still last till today. Like this wasn't a long time ago where we were like, we're only going to let in white people into the country. And, and so, and now Tucker is trying to reframe that as a bad thing, right. In the present day. So, you know, I think that's, you know, that was the point I was trying to make, trying to tie, you know, how recent this is and how it's still. And and he, and he makes this point. I mean, so the, the immigration act was really to repeal things that were passed in the 1920s during the life of, you know, the lifetime of my parents, which right. were overtly, clearly racist. I mean, this is not one of those, those you know, gray areas when you have the Chinese Exclusion Act or something like that. I mean, you know, the, the immigration it's the act. It's right there no, in the name. It, it, was, it, was, it was basically as close to the uh, no people from shithole countries can come into America law, and this is repealed. So Tucker Carlson, again, you know, is, and this is the, I would read a tweet here, you know, Tucker Carlson mocks Biden for saying the January 6th, Insurrection was the worst attack on the country since Civil War. Really, uh, Tucker said, the worst attack on our democracy in 160 years. How about the Immigration Act of 1965? Whoa. Arnold Serwer makes the point. I'm not sure how much more explicit you want Tucker to get than, quote, then he, you know, he, he summarized it. Then repealing race-based restrictions on immigration that inspired Nazi Germany was an attack on American democracy. Yeah, um, to think that until 1965, we had that immigration law in, in place. That's just not that long ago. It's just not. And, uh, yeah, just uh, because I love him and because he's maybe my, one of my favorite writers on the left, it's Adam Serwer. Um, yeah. People want to look him up. Um, uh, but no, that's right. And 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 so that is why all of this stuff is still – I need to get on what Tucker's reading list is. You know, because I was, I was yeah. looking at a David Frum thread about this, where he's also now bringing up how getting into World War One was a mistake. You know, maybe we should have let the Kaiser win. Um, you know, which is like this sort of implicit idea that the you know kind of democratic expansionism um, was also a mistake, in addition to the immigration also being a mistake. I mean, this is some really dark, dark reading um, that that well, he's going. That is an excellent question. What because he is he has gone down some path. He's gone down some dark, unlit corridor intellectually. What is I would you know? That's a very he's good question. Just that up. You don't just pull out of nowhere. Who is he listening? We're getting into World War One was a mistake, and the 1965 Immigration Act uh, uh, was a mistake. Uh, that like that, that's just those aren't just two things that you pull out that you remembered from you know World Civ, uh, you know in high in AP World Civ in high school, right? I mean that it, it, it indicates that 
that that he's digging through these Buchananite texts, you know, about you know, this sort of alternate, you know, kind of way to look at, you know, how you know American and Western history went, and 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 it is it's funny, it is actually in direct counter to what you know to to what the MAGA you know kind of um, what they espouse, right? Like there's this es- exposition that says that, you know, that, that America is great, that we're going to make America great again, that we're going back to, you know, kind of these old days. This is, a, this is actually a step further down the path to that, which is to say that this whole kind of multiracial democratic experiment was a mistake, right? Maybe make America great again is taking us not back to the 1950s as I thought it's been, but like taking us back to the 1850s. Yeah. The 1850s was a great time. So not, not, not to belabor the Republican party as the tofu party too much here. I I am old enough to remember when I would go to these events and um, prominent Republicans would stand up and say, America is exceptional because it is an idea. We are the first nation to be, you know, built on an idea. And the crowd was, oh, this is this is who we are. Absolutely, America is an idea. And now I see, you know, the rich Lowrys of the world tweeting out, "America is not an idea; it's a nation." And so the same crowd, which would have applauded a Paul Ryan saying, "America is 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 an idea," now will enthusiastically applaud someone saying. America is a nation, not an idea. And they would react in the exact same way. So there is this incredible revision of the view of America that's happening in real time. Right now, it may seem like it's, you know, by, you know, some, you know, intellectuals who are tinkering around the edges, like the Claremont Institute folks. But then it gets to Tucker Carlson, who puts it on Fox News. And before you know it, Ron DeSantis is spewing the same kind of thing. And it becomes. It becomes the norm of right wing talking points. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I don't know where this is going because it's not just going to a restoration of the 1950s anymore. I'm so happy that you brought this up because that just reminds <laughs> my gears more than anything, Charlie. I, because that this was, you know, I, when I wrote about leaving the party, you know, I, I, I said up front that, that, you know, everybody when they leave the party is like, the party changed. I didn't change, you know, and I, and I sort of wanted to acknowledge that. It's been a little bit of both for me, right? Like I've changed some, evolved, and the parties evolved some. This is one area where things really have changed. And one of the things that really drew me to conservatism and to the party was this notion that that America has this special place in the world, that America is good, that we're the shining city on a hill, you know, that we are different than other countries in that in that way, that we're special. Um, you know, I've I'd written for politicians into many speeches, you know, and I think I look back maybe with I'd have to go back and look. Maybe I attacked Obama with this and feel bad about it now. But it's like, you know, Obama doesn't see this uh, sees America as no different than Luxembourg or Switzerland. Right. right? Like yep, 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 yep. That, that we're not, you know, that you wrote this around his when he went around, you know, with the, you know, quote unquote apology tour or whatever. You know, the, the, this was the this was the across Republican politicians, this is what everyone said that that doesn't recognize our specialness. Um, and, and now, you know, that is, that is, that is completely stripped from the, you know, vision of the country that is being put forth on the right. And I think it's, it it is an important revision. I do not think that it's on the extremes. I think that the, the voters who were clapping, 
as you said, for for Shining City on the Hill, are now clapping for, you know, we need to protect our own. We're a nation. That's a very dark change. It has major policy implications, not just with, you know, how we act in the world, but also you know, how we treat immigrants and how, how we act here. And so, you know, look, I, I think that there are fair criticisms about ex- the excess you know, maybe that there was a little bit of rhetorical excess around the greatness of America and our ability to turn every country in the world into America that, you know, some of us fell into, um, you know, uh, when th- thinking back around the language around Iraq and some other things. That's a fair criticism. But then to move to the completely other side of the pendulum, which is that, you know, America is, you know, what, you know, whatever, like America is Hungary, uh, is, you know, has some really dark implications. It, it does. It, it is as if, as if the, the the same folks have gone from America is the shining city on the hill to no, no, no. America is in this deep valley and we're surrounded by enemies who are in the hills and they're up there and we need to build uh, moats and higher walls because they're shooting at us and they're coming for us. And we need to shut all the walls and all the doors and everything. It's a completely different view. And as you and I know, it's some of the same people. Hey, so I want to talk about uh, in the time we have left. You got a really great piece uh, in in the Bulwark, a, a a memo to Democrats on the question of populism, and I, I think we've been kind of touching on all of this. My strong sense is that all of this faux populism on the Republicans is not really about populism in terms of like doing things for working people as much as it is, you know, playing, you know, pulling on the threads of the you know cultural grievances and everything. But uh, I thought you made a great point saying, you know, if, if Democrats you know, want to continue uh, holding the high ground on some of this stuff, they should f- they should call the Republicans bluff. T- talk about some of the things that they ought to do. Yeah. Look, uh, I want to start by saying, as I wrote at the end of the article, not all of this is my preferred policy prescription, right? This is, uh, I'm looking at the fields for Democrats and just sort of putting on my analyst, my strategist hat again and saying, what opportunities are the Republicans giving you? What politics is about at its core is is expanding your base and and wedging the other, right? Like that's it. And this is what tr- Trump did well, right? Because people don't get Trump, uh, you know, because everybody always thought about expanding the bases, getting more women and moderates in the Republican Party. He wedged the Democrats against their union working class white voters, right? So how can the Democrats wedge back the Trump coalition? And to me. There is an opportunity to wedge back some of these very working class voters who who the Republicans are now pretending to pivot to because they've totally abandoned the you know upper middle class suburban voter. And, and so now they're pandering to them with all of this racial stuff that we've been talking about. But they're they're rhetorically saying that they're going to become the workers party and the working class party. But anytime any policy matter comes up, they're on the other side of what oftentimes the working class voters would want. So, you know, look at the minimum wage, for example. They didn't want to increase it to 15 uh, like the like the Democrats did. You know, whatever you think about the merits of the minimum wage policy, or this is something that tangibly would 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 help at, you know, people that are, you know, uh, that are working in, 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 in these sorts of jobs. So why don't the Democrats call their bluff on that? Go back, go down to 12, go down to $11, you know, give, give something to force the Republicans to continue to make bad votes on that. This paid family leave thing we, we saw, or, or paid family leave or, uh, or, or, or childcare. I, I think that there are interesting policy discussions on the right way to do, you know, a childcare credit uh, for for um, uh, you know for for working parents working mothers in particular but but you know Marsha Blackburn <laughs> sends out this tweet that's like giving childcare to working moms is like is like communism yes. right I mean they're still stuck in the old economic Adam Smith 
Tea Party, Margaret Thatcher mindset. Many of them are. There's some of the new crop have, are changing, but but the majority of the Republican Party is still completely phony when it comes to economic populism and the democrats need to make them pay for that phoniness and just try to cleave back some of these workers who legitimately do want and need help you know whether it's on family leave whether it's on childcare, whether it's on wages and make sure they know that it's the republicans standing in their way and, and i think that that is the best way for the democrats to put pressure on this Republican pivot that has given them this advantage in the in the Electoral College and in the Senate because of kind of the disproportionate um, population of working class white voters, you know, in, in in the various states, which we you know, which we all talked about. Well, just on a strictly tactical basis, as yeah. I read your piece, I'm thinking they're not going to do this uh, effectively because these they're they're having these big mega bills that just have you know so much packed in them. That, you know, it's going to be easy for the Republicans to say, well, it's another two trillion dollars or it's one trillion dollars. And it's hard to remember all the things that are in there. I mean, you know, if you ask me, you know, could you disaggregate all the things that are in the in the in the president's new proposal that he uh, unveiled? I can come up with the top line. But, you know, what exactly are they talking about child care? What are they doing? So should they break it up into smaller votes to have a let's have a strict up or down vote on how you feel about paid leave or let's have a strict upper. I mean, a, a simple up or down vote on this discrete um, vote on hardcore infrastructure. Should they break it down that way? I or, think, uh, I, yeah, you know. I think that's possible in certain interests, particularly on minimum wage, right? It's like, so Tom Cotton and, you know, said that he's for the $10 minimum wage. So why not say, okay, man, we'll cut you in the middle. Uh, we'll make it a twelve fifty, and and we'll put a vote up in the Senate, and you know make it make that you know I, I think that you got to make sure you got to get Mansion and Cinema on board right for this sort of mm-hmm. thing. You don't want to put them in a hard spot, but but you can find things like that. I, I think that some uh, you know in certain cases up or down votes I think is smart. I, I think also it's just messaging. I mean, just quick listeners, what is in the coronavirus bill besides the fourteen hundred dollar checks? I, I just don't think that your average voter can name anything. And I think that even engaged political watchers can maybe name two other things, right? And, and so I, I think that would be my one cri- main criticism from a messaging standpoint of, of Biden so far is a lot of times when you talk about this, you hear them talking about equity and economic security and, and pa- a lot of pablum. And, and I think very tangible you know, policies and benefits that are popular, um, you know, making sure folks know what that is, and that the Republicans stood in their way. Look, that, this is not going to win over every white working class voter, no. right? A lot of these folks are deep down in the Newsmax and few thing. But can you yeah. cleave off some people who do legitimately need help and do actually think that Republicans care about them because they've bought into this messaging, right? Like that is who you're trying to get to. How can you reach them? Some of that's messaging bills. Some of that's advertising. Some of that's going into conservative media, which I know like everybody except Mayor Pete thinks yeah. is, is doesn't like to do. Um, so, you know, the, the, those are just some ideas for how to think about this in a way that like puts some pressure on Republicans. So they don't just get to sit in their comfy, you know, fake populist um, bubble, you know, talking about Dr. Seuss. Okay, this is a smart politics, and, and and I understand the impulse behind um, moving fast, you know, going as quickly as, as as possible, and we put a premium on that with measures, artificial measures like the first hundred days. But uh, there's also an advantage to going slow and smaller. By which I mean, if you have an issue like this, 
take some time to explain it and then talk about it and then highlight it and talk about it some more and then remind people you're doing it and enforce a vote on it. Um, have these discrete things. People, because I, my experience has been that people tend to tune out sort of the big, massive things. But if you have something that's small and tangible and you re tell them about it over and over and over again, it sticks. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at here is you pass a $2 trillion bill and, you know, five minutes later, everybody forgets all of the details because you haven't basically luxuriated in it, you know, repeated it, you know, yeah. emphasized it again and again and again. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a reason why, you know, popular music stations, when they used to have it, would play the hits over and over and over again. It's the reason why you see the same ad again and again and again. You don't just do it once and then, okay, we've done that. Everybody knows about it. Let's move on and talk about something else. That's not the way it actually works in, uh, in, in political or human psychology. Play the hits, Charlie. I'm with you. That's it. Play the hits and and the tangible thing. I, I just I when I, I complimented Biden earlier about how how he has a knack for for talking like a regular human. Uh, I, I think that his weakness in that spot is that he does sometimes lapse into this kind of pablum, a politician's pablum that ends up sounding like the Peanuts parents sometimes. You know, wah wah wah. Oh. And, I, and I think that. Um, that that there's room here to play the hits and to be very tangible and specific, and and kind of let the chips fall. It's it's going to be a tough midterm. We'll have you know plenty of months now to talk about it ahead. But but that's I think the best the best move on the board. All right, Tim Miller, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Have a wonderful night tonight down in South uh, Carolina, listening to Lynn Wood, and have a great weekend. See you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.